Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. I think you mean Football Australia Hall of Fame inductee Moya Dodd. Congratulations on that. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just Matt Rubenstein and this is Still the Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world game. Ah, the wonderful world game. You know, when they rang me to let me know I was being added to the Hall of Fame, I thought they said I was being indicted. They didn't tell you by way of a dawn raid, did they? (laughs) No, not this time, not this time. But today, work in progress. Group leader Elizabeth Avery joins us after a tour of the US where everyone's talking about the new progressive antitrust. The term hipster antitrust was phrased in response to Chair Khan's article and somewhat pejoratively really, and I think it isn't one that fully recognises the depth of thought that has gone into thinking and rethinking the scope of the antitrust laws. So Chair Khan calls it neo-Brandeis antitrust and it is also called progressive antitrust. But first, Matt, tell us what's been happening around the grounds. Well, as we'd kind of expected, right after we released the last episode, the ACCC released its fifth interim report in the Digital Platform Services Inquiry, which I understand everyone is now calling Repo Number 5. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We all enjoyed the Mambo Number 5 joke last time, but nobody calls a report a repo. They do. It's common Australian slang. If you can go to a servo or a bolo in the arvo with an ambo or a garbo or even a salvo <laughs> without any aggro, you could defo have a repo. Oh, it's not going to happen. Anyway, it's an interim report. Sure, it's an inti-repo. Oh, so we're doing the slang episode this week, are we? I give in. It's a ripper inti-repo from the Akakaka. Oh, what does it say? Basically, it says that there should be new laws to protect Australian consumers and small businesses who rely on digital platforms and to promote competition in digital platform services. It says the main digital platforms have market power and will be able to exploit that power and maintain or increase that power unless something is done about it. And critically, it says that traditional enforcement tools aren't enough. So this is sounding a bit ex ante ye. Yeah, it is a bit, um, which the report is translating as upfront, which I kind of like, upfront regulation. Upfront. Platforms might feel it's more of a shirt front. They, they might. The recommendations start out pretty general with a new prohibition against unfair trading practices, which the ACCC has been talking about for a while now, and also a strengthening of the unfair contract terms regime, which was actually legislated after the report was finished, but before it was released. And those would both apply across the economy, not just to digital platforms, right? That's right. Um, The report then recommends some consumer protection measures for all digital platforms, and those include processes to tackle scams, harmful apps and fake reviews, as well as some minimum standards for internal dispute resolution and an independent external ombuds scheme. Have we had an ombuds in Australia before? I mean, have we called it that? Not at a federal level, I don't think, but it does seem pretty faithful to the original Swedish, um, and I imagine most of us will just call it the ombo. Of course. And I guess that's kind of sector-wide because these consumer issues can come up on digital platforms of any size. They can. And then we get to probably the most ambitious part of the report, which aims to promote competition in digital platform services through a new power to make mandatory codes of conduct for designated digital platforms. Do I need to ask who the designated platforms are going to be? Well, it'll depend. The, The report says that the criteria for designation might be quantitative, like how many users or how much revenue you have, Mm -hmm. but also qualitative, like how important you are as a trading partner. There'd be a separate code for each kind of service, like operating systems or search engines or social networks, and a platform could be designated in respect of a particular service or services where they meet the criteria. So once you get a code developed for a service, then anyone who's designated for that service will be bound by the code. Is that how it works? And what's in the code? That's right. And that'll depend on the regulator. It'll be based on legislative principles and also consulting with the industry. And we hope that'll be a meaningful consultation. The report says that the codes should deal with self-referencing, bundling and tying, exclusive and default arrangements, 
impediments to switching, including data portability and interoperability, and transparency. And it then gives examples of how these issues have arisen in various services that might be subject to the code. For example... So for search services, if you Google the TV police procedural The Rookie, currently in its fifth season, it shows the options to watch that show on YouTube and Google Play, so both Google-owned platforms, before any other options, including the free ones. Or at least it did. It seems to have fixed that one now. Someone at the ACCC likes The Rookie? Yeah, someone at Free TV Australia who made that submission likes The Rookie, Okay, which is available on 7 Plus, if you want to know. <laughs> so this sounds like quite a complicated way to deal with just a handful of companies. Yeah, it sort of does. And the way it's structured, it's quite likely that there'll be more codes of conduct than actual designated platforms under those codes. But it's fairly similar to the mechanisms that they're using in other jurisdictions. And probably better to have a kind of principled framework around these things instead of just saying, here's the code for Apple, here's the code for Google, that kind of thing. Yeah, no question of that. And we'll link in the show notes to the updates the team has prepared about the report, plus a lot more on the podcast before the end of the year. But for now, what else is going on? Well, one thing that repo number five focuses on that we haven't talked about that much are scams. So we've just had the ACCC Scam Awareness Week, which built on a report that said uh, that nearly $2 billion in scam losses have wow. been reported in Australia in the last year. And they're predicting that might be as high as $4 billion this year based on the way they're tracking so far. Those are really staggering numbers. And that's real money that real people have lost. You're probably going to feel that a lot more than if you just bought a car where the ball bearings cost too much because of a cartel. Yeah, it's really huge. And last year, the losses included $701 million from investment scams, $227 million in payment redirection scams, and $142 million in romance scams. And we're hearing about high mum scams where someone pretends to be a kid texting you from a new phone and asking you for money. And now, of course, scammers are pretending to be hackers with your personal data, asking you for a ransom. Yeah, there really seem to be limitless opportunities to be scammed from anywhere in the world these days. But the ACCC is trying to make Australia the world's hardest target for scammers. Mm -hmm. uh, it wants to stop scammers from reaching consumers, whether it's by phone call, SMS, email or social media, then to better educate consumers to recognise scams when they do get through, and then to make sure there's a safety net to prevent funds transfers to scammers. They're establishing a national anti-scam centre and they're asking digital platforms to do more to help too, including new reporting mechanisms and stricter verification requirements for business users. That's right. And now most of the scams I come across seem to be in private messages, which I don't know if they're romance scams or crypto mm. scams or what, but I've got some of them on my phone here. Mm. There's, hi, John, my dog seems to be sick. Do you have time now? Very tempting. tempting yeah, Very is. tempting. <laughs> it's, hello, dear. How are you? Do you still have your work and life? It's an existential question. Yeah, but this is my favourite one, and this is real. The widest thing in the world is the ocean. The thing wider than the ocean is the sky, and the thing wider than the sky is the human mind. Hi, William. Wow. <laughs> That's like a poetry scam. Probably worse than a poetry slam, I'd say. It is. It'll certainly <laughs> keep an eye on the rise of poetry scams in the next year. Somebody has to. And one more before the deep dive. A quick update on the Medibank data breach, which, as you predicted, has gotten a lot worse. The hackers have reportedly released customer details, including details of medical claims, which is obviously awful. Awful. Medibank has said they wouldn't pay the ransom. The government's thinking about making it illegal to pay a ransom, and customers are being warned to watch out for even more scams. Well, our tech and IP partner, Michael Williams, made some interesting comments to the Law Society Journal on the breach. 
He's asked whether the government will really prosecute the victims of cyber attacks for trying to minimise their losses by paying ransoms. So it's an interesting question. And he also asks whether it's really fair to blame companies for failing to prevent attacks when they're also the victims and the criminals have them really at something of a disadvantage. They are really tricky questions. Uh, and Michael says they're likely to be tested in the class actions against Optus and Metabank that are being investigated at the moment. As we know, there isn't an individual right of action under the Privacy Act, and that's part of the ongoing review. So these will have to argue there's a common law tort of privacy or a breach of a recognised interest like a breach of contract or confidence. And that'll be really interesting if they end up going to judgment. I think you can also take a representative complaint to the Privacy Commissioner who can order compensation for everyone who's been affected, right? Yeah, and some of the firms in these breaches are taking complaints that way instead of or as well as a court action, which will be a big test for that process too. There haven't been that many privacy class actions determined in the courts or with the Commission yet, but I guess there haven't been breaches as significant as these ones before. Well, watch this space. But now, Matt, you've sat down with our group leader, Elizabeth Avery, who recently spoke at the Fordham Antitrust Conference in New York, along with a galaxy of competition law superstars, including Chair Lena Khan from the Federal Trade Commission, Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor from the Department of Justice, Executive Vice President Margaret Vestager from the European Commission, and ACCC Chair Gina Cascotley. Competition Law Hall of Famers, you could even you say. You could. It sounded like a great conference uh, with a new focus on progressive antitrust, which is what you get when antitrust hipsters become mainstream. Let's take a listen. We're joined again today by Competition and Regulation Group Leader Elizabeth Avery, who has recently spoken at the Antitrust Law and Policy Conference at Fordham Law School on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Elizabeth, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here again. Now, as well as taking place in obviously a fantastic setting, the Fordham Conference is an extremely high-powered one by the look of things, bringing together agency heads, academics and practitioners from all over the world. What can you tell us about this year's conference? Uh, like who was there and what was the focus? The key regulators that they generally attract and did attract this year are the head of the DOJ Antitrust Division, the Assistant Attorney General, Jonathan Cantor, the chair of the FTC, Lena Khan, and the European Commission's powerhouse, Margrethe Vestager. And most recently, a very significant addition, our very own new ACCC chair, Gina Cascotlieb. I guess what was really clearly evident this year from all the regulators is the days of a very narrow focus of competition law prohibiting only conduct where there was clear evidence of a price effect, which is sort of typical of the Chicago school based on the belief that judicial intervention can chill competition, that has long since gone. So what a few years ago was dismissed as hipster antitrust is now mainstream around the world, partly driven, I think, by a perception that industry consolidation has left many behind and created many inequalities, economic inequalities, also democratic inequalities, environmental inequalities, and particularly impact of consolidation on labor markets and environmental standards. To some extent, there may be some validity in that. And there are others who argue that you're trying to cure the world's ills through the lens of competition law. So, you know, there's still a, a a very healthy debate going on, but it's definitely mainstream and not some esoteric dialogue on the far left. There was a, a really strong focus on digital platforms, and that, of course, is a, a key example of why you need to think about effects on competition more broadly than price, because consumers mostly don't pay financially in terms of the 
access and the services that they receive on digital platforms. So focusing merely on price possibly doesn't capture the competitive effects. There was a focus on the high level of cooperation between the agencies where once upon a time, I suppose starting in the 90s and with a bit of a hiccup in the early 2000s, there was very much a focus on procedural cooperation between the agencies. And I say hiccup because there was a big spat between G and Honeywell in the early 2000s where the DOJ cleared the deal pretty quickly and the European Commission blocked it. So there was not just from American practitioners, but also the agencies, a perception that European Commission was off on a frolic and they really didn't practice antitrust law. They practiced trade protection. We protect competition, they protect competitors. Correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's always interesting to see how our leaders present themselves to their international peers. What did the ACCC chair focus on in her remarks? Gina, as usual, delivered a a really impressive address. She also commented on a number of panels. So we got a lot of insight into her thinking. She emphasised that while ACCC decisions will always be grounded in economics and the facts and referred to Professor Maureen Brunt and the key question being what's really going on here as what the ACCC's focus will be. She did note that the Competition and Consumers Act was broader than just consumer welfare and that the objective is to make markets work for all Australians' benefits, not just consumers, but small and large businesses and with broad social and political community objectives. So that was really interesting and perhaps arguably a shift from when she first spoke about the focus being on maintaining effective competition. I think since she's been in the role, she's seen the breadth of what the ACCC does and actually the breadth of the statute and what it allows them to do. It isn't a very narrow antitrust statute. So you've got the consumer protection. You've also got a lot of market regulation. And moreover, the object of the act itself is much broader than just a very narrow focus on consumer welfare. So she articulated that broader purpose. And she also noted the authorization process and how that really allowed the ACCC to consider public benefits. And she provided the example in particular of environmental benefits and noted that the ACCC was really willing and receptive to arguments about the need for environmental cooperation and those benefits that might outweigh a substantial lessening of competition. Elizabeth, you spoke on a panel about managing the merger process in an increasingly progressive enforcement environment, and that term progressive popped up in a few places across uh, the conference program. Is this the new term for hipster antitrust, or is it an evolution of that idea? What's going on there? I do think it is, and I think it's probably because now that it has become mainstream, it's probably no longer hipster. But the term hipster antitrust was phrased in response to Chair Khan's article, and and somewhat pejoratively, really. And and I think it isn't one that fully recognises the depth of thought that has gone into thinking and rethinking the scope of the antitrust laws. So Chair Khan calls it neo-Brandeis antitrust, and it is also called progressive antitrust. And actually, Assistant Attorney General of the DOJ, Jonathan Cantor, is definitely an adopter of the progressive antitrust phrase and movement. And his presentation was really interesting, describing the last 40 years of antitrust as the era cost era, whereby antitrust lawyers argued 
that enforcers should under-enforce because um, monopolies are self-correcting, but judicial errors are not. He used the example of digital markets and said you need to focus on the changing market realities in developing the case law. Neither of the US heads of agencies are talking about ex-ante regulation so much as reviewing the case law and trying to relitigate some of those cases. But he argues that market realities have changed so much that some of the non-interventionist approach that was embodied in the prior case law needs to change as well. So he's suggesting they're still scrutinising conduct very closely and looking at the facts, but they're looking at it through a different lens, not the risk of chilling competition. This is all well and good, but I, I guess you do have Supreme Court precedent which might limit this approach. My old antitrust professor, Eleanor Fox, embraced the idea but questioned whether it was possible to get there without regulation or legislation. It's definitely a really interesting debate. I guess Lena Khan presented a very thoughtful paper. Her thesis is that we've had 40 years of under-enforcement of the US antitrust laws, but really focusing on the language of the statutes And for the past 40 years, she argues that the language of the statutes have basically been ignored, which is right. When I was practicing antitrust law in New York, statutory interpretation was irrelevant to our analysis or arguments. It was all about the case law and the case law did not rely on legislative interpretation or intent at all. So it's quite interesting for a progressive academic to be focusing on sort of a statutory interpretation argument that might actually will appeal to conservative judges on the Supreme Court. She was particularly focused on the FTC's powers under under their statute to prosecute unfair methods of competition. In recent times, that has not really been used. She's also arguing that the mergers prohibition under Section 7 of the Clayton Act contemplated a presumption against consolidation, and she argues that that's been ignored in the last 40 years. And anticipates a promulgation of some new guidelines shortly. But I guess in the meantime, what we're seeing come out of the US is a very muscular approach against consolidation in industries where they consider they're already highly concentrated. A lot of mergers are being blocked. And what I heard talking to US practitioners is they were finding it very hard to persuade agencies to accept remedies. There's a real presumption against remedies. So they'll either move to litigate and block or they'll allow it if there's no consolidation. But in a case where you think you might have to give a remedy, often the only way to get it done is to do a fix it first, which is essentially the parties divesting commercially first before they seek antitrust approval. And then the other way that has occurred in other cases is the EC has required a divestiture And so then the US has accepted the deal on the basis of the European divestiture remedy, which is interesting, right? Because it means that the US is taking a little bit of a back seat in those cases, which is quite a shift in the dynamics between those agencies. So big changes in America. But of course, um, Margaret Vestager was there as well. What did she say about the European? Yeah, experience? so um, she's she's an, um, another incredible powerhouse. She's an economist by training and has been in politics for quite some time and has been very clear in her views. She definitely has a very strong view of her role and noted that the world is facing bigger challenges than ever before and that the signature of our times is crisis. 
And she very much sees the EC's role as regulating with a broad societal purpose. So this, I think, was evident in the way she talked about digital platforms. She's very proud of their record of enforcement in relation to digital platforms and cited a number of examples in relation to Amazon and Google. But of course, they are also one of the first agencies to have adopted ex-ante regulation and the Digital Markets Act has passed through European Parliament and is coming into force with some grandfathering and gradual introduction. So she's sort of in many ways ahead of the pack. And she focused on a very broad view of the role of digital platforms in, in our society, noting that the power of these large platforms is not just an issue for fair competition, but for our very democracies. Liberal democracies depend on the free marketplace of ideas, the ability of the citizens to access a public square and in conversation with other citizens to decide what is fair and important. This is as vital for democracy as a well-crafted constitution. To have that public square controlled by a few large platforms sets a dangerous precedent against which we must remain vigilant. Our work as competition enforcers serves a higher purpose. So I thought that was a really interesting insight into her thinking. Don't necessarily agree that the competition laws can do all that work to protect liberal democracy, but that's the European Commission's view and, and that's very much underpinning the way they think about enforcement and regulation. That does have echoes of some of the debates around the Sherman Act as well, going all the way back to protecting democracy as well as markets. I agree. There's some really interesting commentary around that now. It was very much a concern that the so-called robber barons were going to undermine democracy. Coming out of the conference, what are some of the main things to look out for in international competition and antitrust going forward? And what would be the main lessons for Australia? I think definitely the broader focus on non-price effects will be a key issue for Australia and Australian clients and practitioners to think about in the way they prepare for a merger or argue their cases and the strategy they adopt in advocating for a merger and seeking clearance. And the merger authorisation process in Australia does allow that consideration of public benefits. So it is worth considering because I think the ACCC is receptive, as our chair has clearly indicated. And another hot topic that arose on a panel that I was participating in was private equity. Private practitioners definitely consider that private equity is under a microscope for many classic theories like horizontal and vertical issues, but also conglomerate effects theories and the ability of private equity to buy businesses that may be complementary, but the adjacencies and the ability to control industries by having businesses in separate markets that somehow could impact each other is definitely something that is interesting the US antitrust agencies at the moment. In the US, you have this prohibition on interlocking directorates, on directors in certain circumstances sitting on boards of competing companies. It's a, a separate prohibition. It may be a potential issue in Australia, but not an outright prohibition. So there's a lot of focus on that and a lot of private equity companies are finding that a challenge at the moment. There were comments at the conference about the agencies being concerned about the business model of private equity itself rather than the conduct. Now, I don't think that's really likely to be an issue in Australia. I think the ACCC is very much focused on what's really going on here and the facts. So 
the business model is less relevant. But nevertheless, it is a a salient warning to everybody that there can be competition issues that arise in the context of private equity, particularly where private equity is involved in rolling up a number of very small players. There comes a point, I suppose, where it could become an issue. So we're hearing a lot about environment, social and governance issues here in Australia and the way those can run up against antitrust concerns. Did that come up much in the conference? Absolutely. And as I mentioned earlier, our ACCC chair indicated a big focus on environmental issues and noted that there was potential to get an authorization where there were public benefits such as environmental efficiencies that outweighed any anti-competitive effects. And the ACCC actually has authorised a few cases where some form of collaboration was necessary, even though there might have been a price increase resulting from the conduct. But without the cooperation, there would have been very low incentives for an individual participant to have undertaken the program. This was in particular in relation to recycling and disposal of batteries. So we do have some good precedent already in Australia. We have a situation in in the US where at the moment it seems pretty hard to explain an antitrust violation by reason of an offsetting environmental benefit. And then I went to Europe after that conference and spoke on a panel in relation to industry collaboration for ESG reasons. And of course, Europe is well ahead of the game and the Dutch authority in particular has been exempting conduct where there's been an offsetting environmental benefit. There has to be clear, tangible evidence of the environmental benefits. Spurious claims of environmental benefits are are not going to be sufficient. And they've actually done quite a lot of deep research into environmental economics together with the Greek Competition Authority on how to measure environmental benefits, looking at it in different ways, including intergenerational equity benefits, et cetera. So there's quite a lot of deep thinking there that I think we'll find useful too in cases where we want to assert environmental benefits to facilitate industry collaboration. Well, it sounds like an amazing world tour and it'll be fascinating to see how all these things develop over the next couple of years. We'll definitely send the podcast team along with you next time you go, Elizabeth. (laughs) I'll need the help. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks, Matt. What a great interview. So should we not be talking about hipster antitrust anymore? Is that terminology no longer groovy? Well, I don't think we've ever meant it pejoratively, but it might be taken that way. I'm happy to give progressive antitrust a burl, but I'm not sure I can manage neo-Brandeisian. Well, I think the people who did regard it as pejorative have needed to find a new word so that it isn't. But anyway, we'll link to some of those speeches in the show notes. They're really worth reading. Lena Khan also gave a talk to the University of Utah on the progressive antitrust agenda, which repeated a lot of what Elizabeth described, including the FTC's reluctance to clear mergers on the basis of remedies. We're looking afresh at at the FTC's approach to remedies, including these instances where we've signed off on divestitures. I think over the last decade, we've seen a healthy swing of the pendulum from a recognition that behavioral remedies can often be ineffective and um, difficult to administer. And I think we also need to be thinking about structural remedies um, through that same prism and and be identifying instances in which we think that those have really failed to, to preserve competition. 
And I see that the FTC has just released a new policy statement on unfair methods of competition under their legislation. Yeah, this is interesting. The the new statement says that the FTC Act was always intended to broaden the range of anti-competitive conduct that could be addressed beyond the scope of the existing laws, like the Sherman Act and the Clinton Act. And the FTC hasn't used it that way in a while, but now the statement says that they'll fulfil that original intention and won't be limited by those older acts, either their language or the way they've been interpreted in the courts. It's fascinating. They've given examples like acquiring a potential or nascent competitor, creeping acquisitions and cumulative conduct, tying and bundling. So they're not waiting around for the law to be changed. They're interpreting it like they think it should have always been interpreted. Yeah, and that may be the best strategy in the current climate because the Democrats actually did surprisingly well in the recent midterm elections, but they have lost control of the House of Representatives and that's going to make it even harder to pass new legislation after the new Congress begins in January. But how about before then? Because they're in those uh, lame duck sessions now and those can be quite productive. Yeah, that's right. They can, but they'll have a lot of competing priorities and they're kind of running out of time now. Mm. Over the current Congress, of course, the Democrats have introduced at least six main antitrust bills, but only one of them has been passed by either of the chambers. And that's the Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act, which uh, increases the highest filing fees for merger approvals by almost tenfold, up to two and a quarter million dollars for a merger worth five billion or more. So that passed the House, so it needs to still pass the Senate. And most of the other bills are still in committee? They are. They're still stuck there. And those are the ones that apply to large digital platforms that meet certain criteria and deal with things like self-preferencing, conflicts of interest, acquisitions and data portability and interoperability, as well as digital advertising. So a lot of things that we're talking about here at the moment. Well, let's see if they hit the accelerator to get through the orange light or whether they grind to a halt. But before we go, the crystal ball's been getting a hammering lately. Does it have anything more to give? Well, one thing that's still a bit up in the air is the idea of a specific merger regime for digital platforms, which was raised in the discussion paper for Repo Number 5. That talked about maybe having a lower probability threshold for lessening competition and wider deeming provisions that would rule out a lot more digital platform mergers, actually. That's right, but the interim report doesn't make any specific recommendations about merger law reform. It just says that there should be an economy-wide review of the Australian merger regime, which should consider the challenges of acquisitions by digital platforms. So playing a bit of a dead bat there then. What's been happening with those merger reforms? Well, in October, the ACCC chair told the House Economics Committee... We are continuing our work in relation to uh, proposed reforms that we will, in coming months... Uh, bring to government, which we know then will be considered by government and by Treasury as to uh, the question for the uh, merits and approach to such a potential consultation and such reform. And just last week, the chair told MLEX there'd be an update next year. So probably early next year, if it's in the coming months, just in time for the World Cup. I think so. And you'd expect they'll focus on the review process rather than the substantive test. The chair did tell MLEX there might be specific thresholds for certain industries, including digital platforms, and that makes sense. The ACCC would want to make sure it got a good look at those, but I'm not sure the actual tests will be different. Okay, good to know. And that's all for this time. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes, follow us on Twitter at gtcompedge, or email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests and topics either side of the new year, including the general manager of the ACCC's digital branch, Kate Reader and Sarah Lynch with The Port Report. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Gilbo and Tobo? Yeah, nah. Um, Devo.